Hi, I'm Joy Howard, editor of Brigham Health Magazine. Welcome to today's topic, The Healing Power of Sleep, brought to you by Brigham Health. We provide the latest information on today's health topics directly from our experts. In this live recording from the Access Brigham Health event in February 2020, our panel shares the Brigham's approach to diagnosing and treating sleep disorders, as well as the science and secrets behind getting a good night's sleep. Please remember this information should not take the place of advice or recommendations from your healthcare providers. So welcome again to the Brigham Access event. We're really talking about a sleep medicine. Before I introduce our panelists, I want to just frame it a little bit. About a third of Americans get less than six hours a night of sleep. That translates, well, if we sort of think of the population level, you could say 50 to 70 million people suffer from some type of sleep disturbance or disorder. And if we look at just outside of the health consequences of that, but the economic costs, so a Harvard University-based study of 7,400 individuals showed that sleep deprivation can cost a company just over $2,200 and somewhere around 11 days of lost productivity per year. And if you sort of expand that across a population, it could be upwards of a $63 billion cost. And that's just an economic impact of sleep deprivation and sleep disorders. So I think it's safe to say that we are clearly in a sleep epidemic. And tonight I'm really excited to explore with our panelists what the Brigham is doing to think about it and address that. So first I'd like to welcome Dr. Chuck Seisler. Chuck is the chief of the of the Brigham's Department of Sleep Medicine and Circadian Disorders. I also want to welcome Dr. Andrew Wellman. And Andrew is director of the Brigham Sleep Disorder Breathing Lab. I think we'll start off tonight with you. And I'm wondering if you could just say at a high level, help frame tonight's conversation, what is so important about sleep and adequate sleep? And then conversely, what are the consequences if we don't get enough? Well, that's a great question, Chuck. And sleep is important for both the brain as well as the body. And for the brain, sleep is critical for, first of all, consolidation of memory. So if we don't sleep the night after we learn something, like at this event, then our ability to retain that information the next day is impaired. Sleep is also critical for clearing out toxic metabolites that build up during waking. So the brain, amazingly enough, uses more energy than any other part of the body. So it's only about 2% of the weight of the body, and yet it uses 20%, 25% of all the oxygen we consume, and a similar percentage of all the glucose that we utilize. So it's a really high-burning furnace that we have up there that is using all of this energy. Every time a neuron fires, that uses a lot of energy. And it's during sleep, first of all, that we replace that energy. And so that's another critical function of sleep. And if we don't replace that energy, what we have, we have sensors in the brain that keep track when we're in deficit. And we can either resupply or we can plug up the sensors. And that's what caffeine, see those jugs of caffeine over there? That blocks the receptor in the brain that tells us that the brain needs more sleep. It doesn't actually fulfill the replacement of the energy, but it masks our ability to recognize that we need that sleep. But all of that burning of that energy 
produces toxic metabolites that build up. Just like sludge in your car builds up and you need to get your oil changed, well, the metabolites build up. And, and some of them are metabolites that are probably familiar to many people here, like amyloid beta, which can form clumps. And if that amyloid beta forms clumps, as has been shown here by pioneering research in the neurology department, that can be toxic to neurons. And so when you say, what are the kind of consequences of this kind of chronic insufficient sleep or sleep disorders, that can be an increased risk of Alzheimer's disease or other neurocognitive impairments associated with the fact that if we don't clear out those toxins, and one of the amazing things that's just been discovered in the last five, six years is that during sleep, the, the support cells of the brain shrink and the channels that remove this toxic debris actually expand. And we've been doing imaging studies here and in collaboration with others, trying to actually see that in process while people are sleeping in the scanner to begin to understand how this clearance happens during sleep and in which stages of sleep. So that's another critical function of sleep. I mentioned that it's important for consolidation of memory. And some people actually come in because people think that they're suffering from the early stages of cognitive impairment on the way to concern about Alzheimer's disease. And then when they get an evaluation, like the sort of thing that uh, Dr. Wellman does, one of the first things to do to find out if it really might be a sleep disorder or maybe another type of cognitive disorder is to do a sleep study. And many people, if they are screened for a sleep disorder and find that they have, for example, sleep apnea, which Andrew's gonna talk about, the treatment of that disorder may completely relieve the memory problem because it may be due to an inability to breathe and sleep at the same time, rather than a neurocognitive degeneration. So sleep is important for the brain. But about 20 years ago, it was discovered by scientists at the University of Chicago that sleep is also important for the body as well. And if we get an insufficient amount of sleep, our ability to metabolize glucose is actually impaired. Insulin becomes less effective and our appetite goes up. And when we don't get enough sleep, we're not thinking of getting a salad. If you've ever stayed up all night, it's, you know, it's like people are craving high energy, sugary, salty foods because they're trying to get that buzz when they're sleep deprived. And so sleep deprivation is in part driving this epidemic of obesity that we have in our society. As Chuck mentioned, two thirds of Americans report consistently getting an insufficient amount of sleep on a regular basis. And that adds up and as more and more people started becoming sleep deprived, that's one of the factors that is thought to have led to the increase in weight gain in our society. Because somewhere in evolution, uh, most animals don't stay awake all night or sleep deprive themselves unless they're starving. So somehow these two things were linked in evolution and when we are not getting enough sleep, we actually, the brain goes into starvation mode and we begin craving food. We release hormones that make us hungrier and less satisfied with what we have eaten. And in that way, it actually contributes to the epidemic of both obesity as well as diabetes because of the impairment of glucose metabolism. And it also affects the immune system. You know, we're just in the middle of flu season. I hope all of you have gotten your flu shots in the fall or it's still not too late. But if you haven't gotten enough sleep in the week before you get your flu shot, you'll only have half the antibody response after you get the flu shot. So, you know, many people are concerned about infectious diseases right now. One of the best, and I was pleased to see that the CDC yesterday, one of their recommendations was if you're concerned about the coronavirus, make sure that you're getting enough sleep because that's one way of keeping the immune system working at its best. And the final thing I'll talk about with respect to the brain is creativity. So it's during the last two hours that we sleep 
that we have, that's most enriched in rapid eye movement sleep, the sleep stage associated with vivid dreaming. And that's when we actually integrate all the information that we learned the previous day with what we already knew. And that's when we can solve problems in a way that, you know, is not necessarily the linear way that we think when we're awake. And so that's creativity and problem solving. That last couple of hours of sleep is critical for that. So I hate to say this, but in a creative industry like advertising at Hell Holiday, you know, those last couple of hours of sleep are really important. And some companies are actually paying their employees to get enough sleep and they're giving them bonuses if they can demonstrate that they've slept at least seven hours, you know, for two thirds of the month and so on. For example, Aetna does that now. And so, because they want to get the most out of their employees and you can actually improve performance reduce injuries, reduce disability day usage. The brochures that you have there show how just providing a program of sleep health education and sleep disorder screening can really be very effective at reducing the risk of many chronic diseases. It's a very exciting arena and it's amazing to see how these things interact. I remember coming to the Brigham and having, you know, the cardiologists and endocrinologists over there, what, you know, sleep couldn't be particularly relevant, but you know, people who get five hours of sleep or less per night, if you follow them over a three-year period, middle-aged people, they have 300% increased risk of calcification of the coronary arteries, just associated with the inflammation that's associated with uh, chronic sleep deficiency. So it's important to get that rest. All right, so I'm gonna pivot, Andrew, to you. I think in that broad context of the consequences, the myriad consequences of not enough sleep, I think people have a lot of working familiarity with some of those underlying sleep disorders that can contribute to those sleep deficiencies, insomnia, maybe restless leg. But about a third of people in this audience, they may not even know it, actually suffer from something called sleep apnea, which is probably one of the more prevalent sleep disorders. I was wondering if you could say a little bit, a little word about sleep apnea, what it is, and then bring it back to what is happening at the Brigham to really look and examine and treat sleep apnea. Sure. Okay, well, earlier we asked for some audience participation. I won't do that again, <laughs> but because the question that I would ask is whether or not you snore or your bed partner snores, because that's a very common symptom, but often it's kind of embarrassing or people don't want to admit it. And the best history that I can get from my patients actually is from their spouse or their bed partner. So Chuck was talking about the quantity of sleep, and that's very important. You need to give yourself enough time to sleep. But the problem with many of us is that we may not have good quality sleep. And the thing that might disrupt the quality of your sleep the most would be if the airway right at the back of your throat, just past your tongue, closes off when you go to sleep. So why in the world would that happen to us? It seems like a heinous thing that you can't breathe and sleep at the same time. And it turns out that humans are really the only species that get sleep apnea. Now some dogs will snore or something like this, especially if you get them in the right position. So there's about a six to seven centimeter space right in the back of your throat where there's no fixed bone or cartilage. And it's thought that that throughout evolution we needed to, you know, we have to do a lot of things through that little space there. Like we form words and that's our vocal tract. We have to breathe through there. We have to eat through there. And so it's a tube that's very pliable that's held open only by our muscles when we're awake. And when you're awake, if you measure the muscle tone in your body, they'll have a little bit of resting tone to it. But when you go to sleep, all the muscles in your body relax. And especially when you go into that stage of sleep called REM sleep, your muscles are paralyzed except for your eye muscles. But when that happens, the tube in the back of your throat gets very floppy and it can obstruct. And whenever it obstructs, you don't get any air or oxygen. 
That sends a little alarm signal to your brain to wake up and start breathing again. But you don't know that you wake up. It's called an arousal or a microarousal from sleep. And this can happen many times. It can happen once a minute sometimes to people who have sleep apnea. And so they're never getting into the deep stages of sleep. And I don't know, maybe some of you know people with sleep apnea or you have to wear a mask or something like that. And about 50% of our patients won't wear their CPAP mask. In fact, I'll admit, I've been snoring a little bit. You know, as you get older, you snore a little bit more. My wife tells me that I snore, but I don't want to get a sleep study done. Do you know why? Because I might have to wear a, a CPAP mask. I don't want to wear it, you know, but, but, but so I understand that. I empathize with my patients who have sleep apnea, but a career dream of mine has always been to try to find a drug therapy for sleep apnea. There's no reason why we should not have a drug therapy to treat this disorder because sleep apnea does not occur when you're awake. It only occurs when you go to sleep. The only thing that happens when you go to sleep are the chemicals in the brain change. And we can find out what those chemicals are and we can give you those chemicals. We just have to make sure that we're targeting the right receptors in the right area of the brain to keep the throat muscles stiff or at least stiff enough while you're asleep. And it's very high risk research. The government doesn't, it's not the kind of thing that you can fund very easily. Recently, we may have found something. We're currently in phase two trials of tests from drug therapies for sleep apnea. So my dream is that one day this would be available to people like me who don't even go to the sleep doctor because we don't want to get a sleep study and we don't want to have to get told that we have to wear the mask. However, there are some other alternatives than the mask too, okay? There's a mouthpiece you can wear. There's some surgeries that you can do as well. But really the main reason I wanted, or what I'd like to tell you is about this drug therapy, which is really cutting edge stuff. You had no idea this was going to be quite as confessional as it is. So <laughs> I'm just going to lean right into it and share with you that. So when I was a chief resident, Chuck and his team was actually just launching what turned out to be one of the most pioneering studies on what are the consequences to sleep deprivation among medical professionals. And this was back at a time when residents were actually able to work very long extended hours. And at the time, Chuck came and was telling us all of the perils of what would happen if we were up all night. And most of us sort of said, well, that's gotta be somebody else's problem because there's never an issue when I stay up for 30 hours or 36 hours at a time. Until shortly after I met with Chuck and we were sort of figuring out how the study was gonna work, returning home from a 36 hour shift myself where I had been up the entire time, I was in a car accident right outside leading the parking deck. And so I, I never told him that, but this is confessional. And I thought this was a, I thought we're among friends. But it was really an opportunity. There's something about, I think, sleep disorders where we like to think of ourselves, of course, as sort of invincible to what the data is really saying and is, is quite compelling. Chuck, I want to come back to you and bring it back to sleep hygiene, actually. And maybe you could just say, what do we mean when we talk about sleep hygiene? And what could people here tonight sort of practically take away as tools and tricks to improve it? One of the most important things is to have a sleep environment in which you can be in a cool, dark, and quiet place. And I love animals, we have two dogs and so on, but animals are not great bed partners because most of them don't have 
the same kind of consolidated sleep. They take little cat naps, dog naps, whatever. They're, you know, a squirrel runs around. Oh, they're barking, noises. And so, you know, one thing is to have the animals sleep in a separate place rather than, than, than sharing the beds is a good idea. Another thing that many people don't realize is the importance of consistency in the timing of sleep. We've talked about sleep duration. We've talked about sleep quality, but we haven't really talked about sleep timing. And in our society, you know, everybody's go, 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 and then they want to go home and then switch off the lights, and no matter what, you know, so one day it's 10 p.m., the next day it's midnight, the next day it's two o'clock in the morning, and, you know, we all feel that the body should just, you know, go along with our schedule. But we actually have an internal clock in the brain. It's tiny. It's about the size of the head of a pin, about 50,000 neurons on each side of the brain, but it is synchronized to the 24-hour day by the light-dark cycle. And so when we're under the Klieg lights here at this hour, uh, anytime the sun is down and you're in bright light, that's not good. Especially if you're like reading from a light emitting a tablet like an iPad or an iPhone or some other kind of tablet. Because that light is full of blue and rich light. And the blue light tells the brain that it's daytime. So we did a study right here at the Brigham in which we showed that even in people who consistently went to bed at 10 p.m., total darkness, woke up at six o'clock in the morning, turned on the lights, that if they were reading from an iPad in the hours before going to sleep, that that actually shifted their circadian rhythms to a later hour, made it more difficult for them to fall asleep, and they would be more exhausted in the morning. And that's people who were in bed for eight hours at a consistent time all night. So, and then we've done another study where we um, allowed them to decide when to go to bed. They still had a fixed wake time, kind of like kids for high school or people who have a job. And of course, if they had the light emitting e-reader, they would stay up later because it's suppressing the sleep promoting hormone melatonin and you don't feel as tired. And the crazy thing about the way the internal clock in the brain is structured with respect to sleep in people is that it sends out the strongest drive for waking just before dusk. During evolution, that might have been a great plan because humans can't see in the dark, so we have this surge of waking drive just before it's gonna get dark. We you know, run around, get back to our safe haven of wherever we're gonna spend the night, and that's great. But now, we have made dusk when we turn out the lights. And sometimes we turn out the lights, sometimes we're reading from, you know, we've got a project we have to do, we're on our screen, but maybe you've got uh, patient records you're trying to review and close out before the hospital gets on your case if you have records that are, haven't been done in enough time. So anyway, there are many reasons why we might be on a screen. That's sending information to the brain saying it's daytime. So you are then pushing to a later hour this tremendous drive for wakefulness that occurs just before dusk. So now for you, dusk might be midnight. For you, dusk, you might have pushed dusk till one o'clock in the morning. And now the next day when you try to, and that's the amazing thing about this, the next day when you try to go to bed at your usual time, you're like, okay, now I'm gonna go to bed at 10 o'clock in the evening. I don't have anything big to do tonight. I've done all of my, and now you can't fall asleep. You can't fall asleep because you have moved your time that you're, that's the strongest drive for waking in your entire day is in the period just before dusk. You have moved that to be at midnight now. And we don't even think about midnight. Midnight is actually the middle of the solar night. So in times gone by, before we had the availability of artificial light, that would be the middle of the night. So this whole thing with the dusk and everything would be happening five, six hours earlier. So now we have shifted the entire population Basically, we're almost on Hawaiian time because we have shifted our circadian clocks four, five, six hours later, certainly past California. 
even though we're trying to live here on the East Coast and we're trying to get up with the chickens in the morning. So that's one of the things that has compressed the time available for sleep. So one of the, thing, one of the best things that we can do is try to maintain a consistent schedule, going to bed about the same time every night, waking up about the same time in the morning, and to try to reduce the amount of exposure to light, particularly blue and rich light in the evenings. There are all sorts of apps that you can put, you know, you can use, after we did this study showing the impact of the iPad, Apple actually developed software, which they call the Night Shift, and there are similar software available for Android phones. And if you set that up, to change the color of your screen at sunset and at sunrise. And if you make it a warmer color temperature when that is activated and reduce the intensity as well of the light coming from your screens, then that will help a lot. So do we hear that? Are you gonna dim the lights for the rest of the evening? Just turn them off? No, no, Chris. Okay, good. I saw Chris was ready to go. We'll keep the clean lights on at least for the, for the, for the last uh, 20 minutes or so. So, Andrew, do you want to say a little bit about, I mean, a lot of people in the room now are wondering, my gosh, might I have a sleep disorder? I'm hearing all this stuff. How could people in the room get evaluated? And then I guess more importantly, when is the right time for us to be thinking, I wonder if I've got a sleep disorder that warrants investigation and diagnosis? Sure. That's a common question because a lot of people snore. They don't know whether you should get evaluated for a sleep test. And, you know, the easiest way is if you're sleepy. So, you know, we could ask another show of hands whether or not you're sleepy. But, you know, half of you wouldn't even be able to answer that question because it's actually hard to know when you're asleep. It's hard to get a history of sleepiness from my patients. So I'm going to give you a way to determine whether or not you're sleepy. And a way to do that is if your eyelids get heavy or you nod off. Because again, when you're trying to figure out if you're sleepy or find out if someone's sleepy, the first thing they tell you is, you know, I don't have time to sleep or, you know, I just, I work through it, you know, or I have coffee, which is really not helpful. But because in order to sleep, unless you're extremely sleepy, you know, you won't fall asleep when you're actively, you know, you can kind of rise to the occasion for a few minutes if you're under the gun or something like that. So usually it has to be a situation where I call it a sleep stress test, like, you know, sitting in a lecture or something like that, maybe with the, when the lights are dim. And the other thing is whether or not your eyelids are getting heavy and you're, everyone's nodded off a little bit like that. So if your eyelids get heavy, you nod off in a situation that, you know, where you're not actively doing something, that's pathological. You're not supposed to do that. And if that's happening, you should first check whether or not you're doing other things like sleeping the right amount of time. So if you come to me, those are the first things that I would ask is whether, you know, what's the quantity of your sleep? We might even do a sleep diary or something like that to keep track of it. Some people don't know how little they're sleeping. And then whether or not your eyelids get heavy when you're supposed to be awake or when you're otherwise supposed to be awake. Okay, so eyelids getting heavy at night while you're watching TV or something like that. Maybe that's not pathological because it's nighttime and you're supposed to be getting sleepy at that time. And then loud snoring, gasping or choking, that would be a suggestion of something like sleep apnea. And then, you know, of course, insomnia is a big problem too. And that's just difficulty sleeping. So there's lots of things that we can do for that. There's behavioral therapies. There's some relaxation therapies that are conducive to helping you sleep or, or reducing things that may make it difficult for you to sleep, like thoughts that you're having about the day or stress or something like that. All right. So with that, I'll thank our panelists. Thank you for listening. To hear more from experts at Brigham and Women's Hospital, please subscribe or visit bwhgiving.org 
forward slash listen. 